constitute material information. If you determine that, here is how you would disclose it. Here are the, here are the KPIs. I'm not worried about the disclosure part. The metrics. The metrics are the metrics are included in the standard. Yeah. Um, we'll get into yeah. that, and that I think is a really that's going to be a really interesting space because as we anybody who's been involved in metrics knows that it's hard to get alignment on a metric. So when you're putting that into a standard and you, the utility of that across an industry, I mean that's where we're going to see this play out in real in real time, the practical application in SASB standards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that more. So a lot of people freak out about, oh my god, you're asking me to put it in the 10K, but before you can put it in the 10K, you have to manage it. You have to understand, do we have the data? Is this really relevant to us? You know, is it something that our investors would care about? Ultimately, over time, it will make it into the 10K. Um, and so we get asked this question all the time, well, well, how many companies are using SASB standards in their 10K? And that's going to be a long journey that's going to be a long game because if you think about the systems that need to be in place, just that you have you have financial um, accounts in your organization that track information, all of those need to be built out for sustainability data that would ultimately go into the 10K and everybody here from EY would know, right? How do we assure this? How do we, what's the, tr you know, like how can we verify the, um, the veracity of this information? What's who, you know, there's, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built up around this, um, but we're, we're already seeing companies begin to use the standards for their strategic planning, for their sustainability reporting, sort of on this journey that we see as a continuum to eventually being included in the 10K. Um, so um, we were kind of surprised by this over time. We, you know, when we, when we issued our first set of standards, you know, we're like, oh, who's downloading the standards? And all of a sudden we started seeing this international interest. So, as one would expect, the majority of the standards have been downloaded by um, entities in the U.S. But we also see the other half, you know, coming from, I think the total is over 60 other countries, um, obviously the U.S. being the number one, but other top markets in the world. Um, and, and I think France is number six. <laughs> and if, if we were to go a top ten, right? Um, and, and we've seen really tremendous interest in the use of the standards and their applicability outside the U.S. Um, because, you know, the markets don't have a wall around them. It's, um, I guess it's not that surprising, but um, so we're, we're really gratified to see that. So um, a little pause after me talking at you all this time. We get asked a lot of questions all the time. Well, is it, um, you know, we, we're doing a GRI materiality assessment, and you use this different term for materi materiality. Um, how do we how do we sort of harmonize that perspective? How can we or should we? So, who here is in the process of doing a GRI materiality assessment? So you've got one, two, three, so a bunch of people. How many here? And we haven't. I apologize. We haven't. You know, our definition of materiality we kind of get to later, but it's basically what comes to us from the SEC and the Supreme Court, which is um, material information is um, the omission, is defined as the, the, uh, the omission of the, the fact would be viewed as by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information made available in their investment decision-making process. So our definition of materiality is squarely anchored, just focused on the reasonable investor. A reasonable investor. That's an 
<laughs> well, one, one thing I think might be interesting to sort of frame up this discussion, because I, I think that you guys are probably starting to see this play out, is that, at least in the U.S., when we essentially have two definitions of materiality. We have the one that's been used under the legal, you know, framework for since the 70s, which, you know, which is the, fin I mean, finance people understand that, and that's the way the 10K works, and, um, and then we've kind of borrowed this term for sustainability, so it has this broader stakeholder, um, you know, pro um, process to it, but uh, I'm going to give you two interesting scenarios here. One is that our founder, Jean Rogers, was at a CFO forum, and she was talking about what, we're do what, what it is we're doing, and speaking the language of finance and talking about our standards is helping manage risk and opportunity, and it really made, made sense to a lot of CFOs in the room. Um, when she mentioned that your sustainability reports talk about materia materiality all the time, I mean, G4 really emphasizes that. There were CFOs in the room that had no idea that that word was used in a voluntary report. And they were like, as soon as I go back you know, to my company, I'm going to be, like, we are really gonna be looking at that because that is a liability for us. Same thing happened recently at an ABA uh, panel discussion that our uh, director of education, um, uh, Doug Park, was at. And um, it was this discussion, should there be two definitions of materiality? And again, the lawyers in the room, you can imagine what they had to say about it. Um, they went as far as saying, and we're not trying to be controversial here, this is not like us saying this, but they went as far as saying that your voluntary reports are actually a liability to you. And so when you, we love to do this like state of 10K disclosure, that's what we do all the time. We're looking at the 10Ks, we're comparing it with, you know, with um, what's out there in voluntary reporting. And it's remarkable how much more is said here and it's not reflected over here. And so there's this discrepancy and that's why there's starting to be challenges to that. And in fact, there are many companies that really get this and are not using the materiality in their voluntary reports. So that's why like, we're interested to know what you think about this, this whole notion of like, can we have two definitions of materiality? What are you hearing and seeing out there? And you know, do you have any alliance with the, the 10K reporting when, when you're working on sustainability reports? Is there any discussion with finance and legal? So let's just kind of hear from you because this is what we're sort of hearing. Hey, do you have the mic? Yeah. So for those of you who are doing materiality assessments, well, not even for those of you who are doing that, but in general, the people here who are involved in reporting, are you also having conversations with the finance department at all? And how's like it going? Like show of hands. Like not, just, which you, have you tried and you just can't get anywhere? Um, so maybe we can we yeah, can who's talking to finance? Mic? Raise your hands really high so we can see you because uh, it seems like there's not a lot. Okay. So why don't you have a? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know if this is. Let's see. Oh, yeah, there fine. Yeah. Um, experience is uh, we gotta be very pragmatic. I mean, as I said, we're in a consulting firm, so our primary client is with CSR departments, but we also work with CFOs, and we are we are issuing, for instance, integrated report for a private equity firm, and our client in this case is uh, is the CFO. We gotta be very pragmatic and translate our ESG wording into business issues. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, let's say, 90% of the time, that's how far we can go. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can value it, uh, but it's just hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta be very clear about that. Yeah. <laughs> As we, we, don't, we don't have such robust evidence as in financial reporting. So um, I, I think one key actor you mentioned was investor relation department, mm -hmm. because they are, um, 
the go-between guys with the CEO of a firm when they are preparing like 50 slides to go on a general meeting. And if those guys are convinced that investors are, are willing to take a look at this ESG report, then we're going to win the battle. So um, it's not so much the CFO, which is still very defensive approach. It's more into the investor relation yeah. uh, department that we are trying to, to demonstrate that ESG matters. And that's actually interesting for us, too, because we know and we hear from our corporate working group members all the time that their investor relations people say, um, investors aren't interested. They don't see it. They're, it's not coming up in the quarterly earnings calls. And so that's what kind of gets reflected around in terms of the relevance of this. And um, I think we've showed you a lot of evidence that supports that they are. So it's like we don't I think we're just operating in this still quarter order over quarter mentality. Yeah. And the IR people, that's actually a key stakeholder of ours as well, because we, we need to get in front of them. and. Why wait until those questions get asked is our thing. Why not get ahead of the game, be leaders for your organization, and don't get stuck in that sort of mentality? Yeah, and if I could just add on to that, I think one of the things that, um, I think it's called IR Update, which is the National Institute of, no, National Neary. Investor Relations Institute's Neary's uh, monthly newsletter. The cover story of the September issue of that was How Green Are Your Disclosures? And it was all about this, which we just sort of celebrated when we got it and landed on my desk. I was like, yes, they're finally talking about it. Um, but the, the point about this issue not coming up on quarterly calls I think is really important because they probably never will because these aren't quarterly problems unless you've spilled you know, bazillions of gallons of some toxic substance somewhere that now needs to be cleaned up. Then you then you'd, you know have a question about that. But the things that really are eroding value or have the possibility of, you know, like helping create value can be very, very long-term things that wouldn't come up on a quarterly call. So we'll talk a little bit about how investors, well, maybe maybe this is a good time to do it, that the CalSTRS, the CalPERS, the pension funds, the long-term asset owners are beginning to use SASB as tools for engagement with companies. So they're not on the quarterly call, they're having conversations, you know, like, hey, we're invested in you, we'd like to know, what are you doing about diversity? What are you doing about um, human rights? What are you doing about these issues? So they use SASB disclosure topics as tools for conversations, and I think we're going to begin to see more of that, but it probably won't come up on the quarterly call, maybe ever. So, mm -hmm. um, Okay, hold on. There's a lot of hands going on. Yeah, we got a lot so of hands. Edwin, back there, I don't know if you wanted Is to there somebody over say here? anything about... Um, yeah, just back to your original question. Um, it really is back to the investor relations. My name is Rebecca. Sorry. Good morning. Um, I come from a financial institution, and you just listed a bunch of our clients, CalPERS, et cetera. So our investor relations team is actually very keen on these topics, um, and they would like to see more of them represented, so there is encouragement. There's also buy-in on materiality of sustainability, and I think it's actually refreshing. They're finally thinking, oh, good, <laughs> what actually impacts our key performance indicators? This is what we need to be talking about. Right. And then setting clear targets and then measuring them. And then when you're measuring them, I think that's when you're able to get everybody on board because right. then they're gonna to start to see your progress. And then that's when they'll feel more comfortable integrating it into your financial disclosures. There's less liability, there's less, et cetera, because everybody's had a chance to review it. So right. I don't know if that's because of the company I come from, um, but that's yeah. just me. No, that's, that's a great, great perspective. So. I know, I remember, um, I loved that quote that Michelle Edkins said once in one of our Delta series, and she's with BlackRock. She's like, you know, the questions aren't coming up because they don't know the questions to ask. You know, they don't have the appropriate framework. They mm -hmm. think somebody else is asking those questions. So it's just kind of like, that's not our space. 
And so, you know, you have to create the language. Like, that's what I love about SASB. It's this language that we're now trying to kind of translate um, in, the, in these audiences that haven't really been able to do so before. So you had a comment? Oh, you. Okay. Yeah, I, I, um, and did you? I was at uh, last year's commit conference, and they had a whole workshop on this definition of materiality thing. And I, I changed the question, which is something I like to do a lot, because you know, having the discussion about two different materiality definitions, you know, how could something be a material sustainability risk and not be financially material? Right. So, mm -hmm. so I, my brain can't comprehend something that could be sustainability material, sustainable material risk sustainably and not be financially material. So for me, two definitions, it, 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 I, it can't, work. I can't process two yeah. definitions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the second thing is though, um, when I talk to CFOs, I don't talk about their disclosure for, from a materi financially material risk from a disclosure standpoint. I bring it right to their actual um, cash flows and, and mm -hmm. balance sheets. So I use Bob Willard's model all the time. And I just predict if you do these sustainability things, your profitability will improve by this much. And mm -hmm. then I have to put up. Yep. Yeah. So, so um, that it's getting the attention of the CFOs of the company yeah. much more than when I talk about external material risks to them. That's actually a great point, and we do have a slide later on where we're, we're going to advise you to start thinking about the world that you're in and how to, how to translate into that into a financial lens and have that conversation through the language they need to, need to hear it in to be receptive. I think we have one over here first. Oh, do we? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I actually had a kind of a question or a thought starter on the opposite of translating the uh, sustainability into the finance world that, in that language. So, the, I mean, the first challenge obviously is getting your organization to your, your finance team to understand what the environmental impacts are and the social impacts and then how those interact with, with, with the financial numbers. But uh, I think the other challenge that other people in the company are, would push back on is getting the, your, your, your stakeholders to read your impacts correctly because mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example. Um, one year, um, steel cases, uh, it was either our electricity or our water had gone up, um, our impacts had gone up by maybe 1.5 times. And that was because of our, our annual sales went up by about three times. So in reality, we actually lowered our, our impacts. But for some people that are used to looking at just numbers and they want to see the ticker signs going across the screen, you have to have them understand that, hey, we're actually doing better. We're not actually doing worse. Right. Or because we're a bigger company, maybe we're two times larger than all the other people that are on that financial report. Um, we, have, we may have more impact right now, but we also have more opportunity for change, and we also have um, a much bigger you know, financial gain. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's trying to translate the size of your company and then the impacts that you're doing relative to your sales, I think, that we want people to understand how to read. Absolutely. Uh, one thing, and we don't have a research team here today, and they, they could answer all kinds of great questions for you, but they are trying to create a set of metrics that, like an analyst like building blocks of information so they can normalize and do the types of, thing, the types of analysis that you're talking about. So they're not look, you never look at a whole number. They're, they, they're looking at how it's, you know, how it's relating to your financial condition. Yeah. So that's, you can think of it that way too. I think we had another question over here. I can trot that around too if you want. Yeah, you know, we're going to be in a plane for eight hours, so we yeah. might as well get our walking in now. Thank you. Um, having spent 10 years in investor relations um, some time ago, I, I, I feel like 
there are two things that were just said recently that I just want to underscore. One is time horizon. And I think that's, that's so important. And I think SASB has brought that discussion into the conversation, um, although it's a difficult one to have, because how do you talk about metrics um, when the metrics that, because of that time horizon variability? So that's number one. And number two is, um, it is a language thing, as it was just mentioned, because the vocabulary, um, when, when you're talking to someone in investor relations, often they are getting some of these questions, but they don't recognize them right. as, Thank you. IR, as, yeah. as financial questions. Yeah. If they're getting questions about employee turnover, employee satisfaction, customer retention, and you know, there's a whole host, as we all know, of those kinds of questions that an average investor relations person may not identify as a sustainability yeah. question, but truly is. That's so such a great point. So if you're talking about 80%, you know, defining what those 80%, which is what SASB is trying to help companies do, is, is just so important. This is the same point that Eva Zlotznika from, yeah. from UBS, who's a, a key analyst there, um, has said, is that they don't realize that they're actually speaking this language. And it is so much about the vocabulary, because the whole world, world of sustainability or ESG conjures up in some people's mind this, like, oh, SRI, investing, fringe, investing, and whatnot. And it's really, um, we like to align, like, we like to say, it's really boring, but we like to say managing your non-financial risks and opportunities. Like when we talk to finance people, and we just keep it dry, you know, like yeah. um, so that it's to oh, your point. Non-financial, I, yeah. I kind of like the you know intangible. Intangibles yeah. is better. Because to your point. Implies that there's no yeah. No, it's the point you were making earlier, which is yeah. a good one, and we should sort of. Yeah, I think um, let's do one more question, and then we need to move on because we have a lot of material, and um, I can already tell I'm going to have to race through mine really quick to get to I just want to I want to amplify what you were saying as a communicator. This is a language problem, mm -hmm. and if you go back to the the formal definition of materiality as you described it, it's the omission of information which affects an investment decision. These are questions about information that people are seeking which will impact their investment decision that may not be able to be expressed in financial terms. Right. It doesn't mean they don't have a financial impact. Bingo. It just means that they can't be expressed in financial uh, terms, and yet they are material to an investment decision. So I think we want to be careful not to force them into financial terminology or language when, in fact, they're not. Great yeah, point. and that's another great point, and that's why we, like, when, when people hear the word 10K and, you know, they're not maybe savvy about the different aspects of the 10K, we, there's a place in the, M, um, in the 10K where we, where we suggest our metrics would go, our, you know, our data would go, and it's in the MDNA section. And there's a, there's a part of the 10K that talks about risk and probability, and, and that, you know, and, and that's meant to have that MDNA, that discussion where management can can kind of project these things that are at risk to the company. So that's, and that's not all about nuts and bolts with finances, right? So yeah. Yeah. anyway, I think so, we, need yeah, we need to move on. Jump um, ahead. So this is you, right? yes, okay, this is me. So now we're gonna kind of just get into the real meat of, of SASB. What it is we do, we want you to understand, to walk away going, oh, I get what they're doing and how their process works. Because there's, I think, a lot of confusion out there still. Um, we realize it all the time that we always have to kind of send this message out. So you, you understand what our value proposition is, how our process works, and, and that sort of thing. So hopefully you'll get that 
um, after looking at this. So let's see here if this works. Now, um, this is just a really newly released video, and I would actually advise you to go on our website because we've got other great videos up there. We have a fantastic one from Nick Fanandaskis, the CFO of DuPont. So if you want to hear kind of what some forward-thinking uh, CFOs are, are thinking about, that's a great example. Um, this one here is a compilation of um, uh, some very key members of our board. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. The types of things that our investors are interested in, in now are different than they were 40 years ago. They're influenced by what's happening in society and what's happening in the environment. Uh, for decades, we've been using financial statistics to give investors the kind of information they need. But today, I think a lot of them don't feel that that's an adequate picture of all that the company does and its future. And so SASB is trying to fill the need of giving comparable information on sustainability issues. I joined the SASB board because I think standardizing the disclosure of sustainability information will bring significant financial benefits to investors and help strengthen the overall economy. And the fact is, uh, transparency is an economic engine. SASB's vision is to bring a complete set of information to the capital markets that helps investors understand a full range of risks and opportunities associated with environmental and social factors. In a nutshell, SASB's vision is that any investor can type in a ticker and pull up sustainability fundamentals right alongside financial fundamentals. The standards that SASB develops are a complement to the SEC's required disclosures and again give investors a better sense of the long-term viability and sustainability of a company looking at non-financial factors. I think the work SASB is doing is incredibly important to the future of our capital markets. So, and like I said, on the video, you can see a more extended video from Mary Shapiro and one from Michael Bloomberg. But, you know, we like to reflect that there are, you know, strong voices out there. Um, sometimes we feel like we're in an echo chamber and, you know, we love what we're doing. But um, it's really important when we see these very luminaries and very key people who are, um, you know, moving this agenda forward. So let's get into a little bit more about who we are and what we do. So we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, with a mission of developing industry-specific sustainability accounting metrics that are suitable for, uh, for U.S. publicly traded companies in their SEC filings. And I, I should just stress that over and over again. Just think when you, if you have, we're in an elevator, like your elevator speech for SASB, you know, what we do is industry-specific accounting standards. There's, there is no such thing right now. There, we'll get into how we differ, but that is one key area right there that you, you need to take away from. So, you know, in, this, in, in the world of what we, we do, we are primarily doing standards development right now. Our team is, when I show you the calendar, you're, you're gonna scratch your head and wonder how we even do it. Um, but that's primarily what we're doing right now. We also have an education group that's working on some really interesting um, projects and certifications and such. We do conferences. We have a Delta Series conference, which is complimentary and fantastic. It's in, you've been to them. so. They're in New York um, every quarter at Bloomberg office. They're, like I said, they're on our web website under Delta Series, and I would really advise you to partake in one of those. Um, we're doing research publications and licensing, and then we have a corporate roundtable that we have in mind for the future. So we talked about the, this issue of materiality again, and it being really centered around the reasonable investor. 
Um, and when I first heard this, I was, I was like, well, gee, that's clear. Like this definition, uh, material information is defined as presenting a substantial likelihood that the disclosure of the admitted fact would have been viewed by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information made available. Now, I come from the world of GRI reporting and thinking of materiality with my stakeholder assessment and all that you're doing. So when I first saw this definition, I'm like, well, gee, that's clear. Like, I mean, I don't know if the rest of you are going, oh, that's it. It's just so obvious to me now. But um, the more and more I you know, have been at SASB and I realize the utility of this definition and the, the fact that the reasonable investor, the, that evolves over time. It's not stagnant. It's, it does, and I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but the whole point of it is that you've got to be understanding what your investors are wanting. And that isn't the same as what it, what it was 10, 20 years ago. So did you have a It really is to your point about material information. It's and and so there's you know getting to the language and vocabulary question. There's a lot of there's there's a desire for people to have that thing that they can say it's material. It's I've done my materiality assessment. Here's my matrix, and you know here here are all these things. But the question of what goes into disclosure is that material information question is a it's almost like a a fine sauce, you put a bunch of stuff in the pot, and then you simmer it down into that information that investors would see as having, you know, influenced their decision-making process. It's not to say that the things that you do on, through your materiality assessment are unimportant or not relevant to your stakeholders or things that you shouldn't be caring about or communicating to them in other uh, venues, but when it goes through this sieve to the 10K or when you're starting to think about disclosure, you, you can't take all of that stuff and stuff it in because investors don't care about 80% of it. Right. Um, so just we, I wanted to um, move forward and also let you know just a little bit about our backing, our governance. Uh, we did make a recent board announcement about, I guess it was a couple months now, but uh, with the recent addition of Michael Bloomberg and Mary Shapiro as chair and vice chair, which really actually g gave us more teeth, that really strengthened the, the board. This is the complete uh, cast of characters on our board, and I will also say just a couple things to point out there. You know, um, many of these names you recognize. Uh, there are three SEC, uh, well, one commissioner and two chair, um, so right away they, they are really helping us with that you know, how to talk to the SEC. We do talk to the SEC. We get asked this all the time. We, um, the SEC isn't endorsing us, and, or, nor are they saying, yes, this will be a standard. Uh, you know, right now we're briefing them. That's it. There's a conversation that's happening. They get briefed on every single standard uh, se sector, of, um, sector that we roll out. So all the standards in that sector, they get briefed on that. And that's where we're at today. And if I could just add on to that, what our, our chair and CEO is actually in DC right now doing her latest you know, trot through um, briefing the SEC. And they're beginning to ask really key questions, like how can you, can SASB make surveys go away? Can you make, um, can you make um, shareholder resolutions 
reduce in number, can you make them go away? Is SASB the, the tool, the vehicle through which those kinds of things could happen to reduce the burden on companies? Because every shareholder resolution, anybody who's been involved in mm -hmm. answering one would know that it's, it comes at a tremendous cost of both time and money because you're paying a bunch of lawyers. Um, and so they're, they're leaning in and asking these questions that we used to get from the Chamber of Commerce. Now the SEC is asking the same questions like, hmm, all right, you know, and they're, they're handing off our industry overviews to their industry people so that they're, you know, beginning to say, all right, we, we see this. They really are complimenting us on our process and our progress. And um, so it's, it's really gratifying to see that. Then the other thing that I wanted to just throw in here, which is like hard to keep up with ourselves, is that Kevin Parker was just appointed to our board of directors. He used to be with, um, I'm going to say Deutsche Bank and now has um, Sustainable Capital Investment Management, I think is what SCIM stands for. So he's just recently joined our board. And he's not on And we team. haven't added him to the list. Okay, so well, we will uh, do so to yeah. put justice around that. Um, now, we also get asked about our, our backing. Um, that question came up today. So we are uh, backed by the, these very pro uh, predominant funders, as you can see here. We started out really um, being backed pre pre like predominantly by Bloomberg. That's where we, the, the birth of SASB really happened at Bloomberg. And um, I will also point out that we have um, a very robust working group process, uh, process and we've had a lot of key individuals contribute to that. In fact, in the neighborhood of um, 1,800 people so far, balanced across corporations, investors, and public interest groups. And then on our advisory council, um, advisory council, we've got about 150 members. And a lot of people go, oh my gosh, how, how do you even manage uh, you know, 150 council members? But, the reason that that is so large is because we are a small nonprofit standard setting organization with about 30 people. We can't socialize SASB alone. We need the key influencers out there um, who are working this in their network. We need consultants who are talking to their clients. So we really, as we go through every, um, every working group process, we try to get those people into the fold who can really help us be that ampl like amplification of SASB. And that's working out really well for us. So we get asked this question all the time. And so there, we couldn't have a SASB briefing without putting this up. And I think, again, I'll say the same thing I said to you really earlier. They're uh, industry-specific accounting standards, and we use the definition of the US Supreme Court um, for materiality. That's the key, the key to, the two key differentiators. Um, and think of us as the voice and communication channel to the investor. So not that these other things aren't important. You see, like I joke about this all the time. Like, would you, um, could you imagine a day where you just don't report, do any other report, reporting and you just tell your stakeholders, well, read it in our 10K. It's a fabulous document. That's riveting. Just flip through it and you'll get the picture. You know, you laugh at that because it's, it's funny. Like nobody would do that. Nobody reads a 10K. Very, not nobody reads a 10K, but nobody in the world that you're talking about really, very few probably read your 10K. So, flip that around, you, it's just as kind of asinine if you think about it to ask a investor, well, just go into our voluntary reporting and you can get what you need there. So you have to kind of understand it's, again, the language thing, it's the translation issue that we're, we're talking about. So, you know, everybody knows the GRI. I always say we couldn't do the work that we've done without the GRI because it's an evidence-based approach. And unless companies were reporting on this and managing this, we wouldn't be here today. So this is like we're standing on the shoulders of the GRI to, to do the work that we're doing. It's a next evolution, if you will. And, um, but as you know, they're a general framework and they're international. And then integrated reporting, obviously, is something that's being discussed a lot, uh, the notion of integrating your financial and your non-financial. So I like to kind of say that 
SASB is really this practical approach of integrated reporting in the US because we're not going to change the way we do our financial reporting anytime soon. So why not use that mechanism to bring into the fold with the non-financial information? It just is logical. Yeah? I don't mean to be a test, but yeah. um, because of that focus on what you're calling US, right? Mm -hmm. And most companies, the biggest companies, the ones that are doing most of this is they work at a global multinational company. And also, on the other side of the house, FASB and the International Accounting Standards Boards are in the process of merging. So there's actually only going to be one accounting standard then are, are complementing. Well, global companies still do report in the U.S. under a 20F, so they, there is a place for them to fit into this. And you're right, that landscape is changing. So, I mean, there's a lot changing. So I think that, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen with FASB and IASB and when that's going to play out. Um, we, all we, what we know is that we have a mission and we're fitting it into the infrastructure today. And we're, we're, you know, I think this, this is going to evolve. Like, who knows where it'll be 10, 20 years from now. But right now, it's like we're building the infrastructure for it. I don't know if you have anything yeah. else to add to well, that. Well, so, you know, to your point of the, the multinational companies being mm -hmm. among the leaders, they're, they're the companies that have adopted GRI. If you look at the, you know, the companies that are the big reporters, they are the multinational ones, tend to be European or U.S. companies that are in the Fortune 500. Um, we're, we're saying that we're focusing on the U.S. for a couple of reasons, but the, the, to Deb's point, the multinationals like Unilever and the, you know, who do a 20F filing here all would have these guidelines that they would need to report in their SEC filing. So we, we talk about that being the starting point of our work because we have to start somewhere. And our, our pace is, is really breakneck. To get the work done, we have to stay focused. Over time, it may very well be that other companies that are trying to comply with the EU directive say, this is a cost-effective way for me to do that. Um, here are the things that I should be looking at, and here's the way that I'm going to be reporting on them. So it, you know, we're in a transition, and everybody wants to know the answer. What is the answer? And, and we're in a, a, I think, on a, on a continuum of, of um, increased sophistication about why what information you know people want and need and how to get it and how to get what investors want to them to get to other stakeholders what they are seeking so there isn't a right answer on this quiz you know it's um we're we're really on a, a journey and we're kind of coming to this game 15 years 20 years after gri right so we wouldn't exist if what people were getting out of GRI was adequate for the investor community. Otherwise, it's really no fun. We're, it's hard what we're doing. Um, so, so we're trying to fit, plug that hole of what investors need, not saying that GRI should go away, um, but also saying we have to focus, we have to stay focused on. And it's very helpful to have almost a narrow um, or a smaller sandbox to start with with a narrow definition of materiality because it allows you to put together an industry-specific standard. When you start talking about you know, this international landscape, some of the metrics that you'll see need to be translated into an international arena. So when we talk about diversity in the US, that has a really different meaning in China, right? That has a really different meaning in India. And you know, it's, like, it's not the same thing. So there are parts of the standards that to make them international, like fully 
you know, full-blooded international standards require kind of a translation, and that may come over time, but we're trying to get the U.S. ones down so that others can say, all right, if I want to adapt, if I'm a Chinese company, I want to adapt this here. What does that mean to me in this company, in this country? Well, so you'll have to look at the metric. You look at the metric of what that means, and it will. You would have to make it meaningful outside the U.S., and that's why it's very challenging. When we sometimes something won't make it into the standard because there's no way to make it applicable to all the con companies mm -hmm. in an industry. So that's one of the things that we'll talk a little bit more about when we get to this part of you know unpacking SASB is that a SASB standard to make it into the standards needs to be applicable across all companies or it's not on the list. So, um, yeah, I, I will just say that now we are going to move through a lot of material. Um, we'll see where we get with it. Uh, we're a little bit behind schedule. Uh, so I'm going to try to kind of pick up my pace a little bit. I do like the discussion, so I don't want to squash that too much. So we'll kind of just see how this goes, and we'll let the discussion unfold. And, you know, just it's always... It's always a challenge to know the cadence of these things. But um, so back to what I was talking about with uh, SASB and what we're about. You know, this just shows where we're at today. I mentioned we've had 180, uh, 1,826 industry group working group members. Some of you in this room have participated in that process. If you haven't yet and your you know, standards are coming in your area, I would encourage you to do so. We'll talk a little bit about that in the toolbox section. Um, but this represents so far about 20 trillion assets under management, 8.7 trillion market cap, and um, so really kind of a nice, robust showing of the representation in the industry groups that are that are have weighed in on our standards. And um, we have 3,800 downloads today. Katie showed you that we're getting a lot of inter international interest. So about 40% of the downloads are from international um, folks, and so that number just increases on a daily basis. So getting into our standard setting process, just so you really get to understand the way we do the work that we do. So this is an eye chart, um, but this is really showing you all the sectors that we're covering and then the industry-specific standards that fold under those sectors. So what you'll notice here, there, there's about 88-plus red bars in there. That's how many standards we're creating. Um, they fold under the sector as an umbrella because the way we, you know, introduce these to the world is in a package. Um, it's not a sector supplement like you're used to hearing about with the GRI. It is, each one of these are very specific to the industry. Um, you can imagine for transportation, for example, you couldn't have a sector standard that would be comparable and would make sense for airlines and rail and, you know, auto. It just doesn't make sense. So that's, you know, I think most people understand that and they, they, they get what we're doing. So here's where we're at to date. Today, we have issued, just this week, we issued our transportation standards. Today, actually, today. So, yay, another batch. <laughs> and we are just wrapping up the services sector public comment. We, uh, right now, in the working group process, we're in consumption. So, the train just moves quickly. Um, I do want to point out, because a lot of times, people are like, wow, you guys are just moving really fast. And yes, we are, but each one of these standards does take a year to develop. It's not like it just whips through like we do a standard in three months and there, there you go. It goes through, it starts with research. So it starts with this very, that's the first phase of our, of our process. And that's a evidence-based approach. Um, we're looking for evidence of interest and evidence of financial impact. 
So we comb the, and I'll get into the methodology in a minute, but we're combing the sort of sea of ESG issues. And from the, those, that evidence-based approach is what goes into the standard that, or the industry brief that is what then goes into this vetting phase, which we call the industry working group phase. And that is where we have people wait, uh, wait in, to weigh in on the industry brief, which is the kind of the basis of what will go in the standard. We have the corporations, investors, and public interest folks weighing in on that and even, evenly distributed. So we don't want one way more outweighed than the other. And that's a really short process. It's a 30-day process, but it's really about, like, did we get did we get it right? Like, if you're looking at this, are these issues the ones that you're looking at in your industry? Um, because of our process, most people go look at it and go, well, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Like, that's, of course, we're looking at that. If anything, they sometimes will say, well, you're missing several things. Um, but we ask them if we are, then please support it with evidence of interest and, uh, and financial impact so that we can look in on that a little bit more closely. And we do. And sometimes that's what ha ends up happening as is other issues get added. Convert um, also, alternatively, some issues get dropped because our, our industry group didn't, we didn't get enough consensus around that issue. And so it, it's not something that can be supported. So in that case, it, it could get dropped. But that whole process is what then really informs the public comment. So we could have just gone right from research to public comment, but we really wanted this in-between vetting phase. Sometimes that causes problems for us because our industry group working members think they just, they just weighed in on the standard itself, but no, it's the brief. It's the industry brief, which, by the way, are available to you all as well. So when you're, I'm going to talk you, walk you through the steps later down of what you need to do when you're looking at our standards. Read the brief first because that supports the evidence that goes into the standard. Um, public comment period is a 90-day process, and then once we are through with that, that's then when we issue a provisional standard. And those standards are provisional for a year. Um, we recognize that they're new to the world, and we need we still need to get feedback on them. Um, and that's why we really want to understand the utility of them and how, like, we're starting to enter in this world of, you know, okay, what are people doing? We, we get asked all the time, how are people using them? What do they have to say? And, you know, they're so new and coming out so quickly that we're still, we're still gathering that. Like, we're still learning as you are about that. So I don't have, like, a nice case study of all these companies that are using SASB today. It's just too early for that. Um, did you have a question? You answered it. Oh, okay. They're available online. Yes, so the standards are available for the they're free, to, they're a public good, so you can go on our website, and I've got all kinds of links for you, but you go under the standards section, and you can download them. Uh, the sector, the, the industry briefs are a little harder to find. We are working on navigation of our website. Um, they're under the sector tab, and Katie and I discovered that they just radically changed our website without telling us, so, <laughs> so we were looking at it going, oh, who knew? It's, it's all kind of new. So we might, some of the links I gave you may be incorrect. Um, I'm assuming they're not, but if they are, I will go back and check on that and revise the slide deck if that's the case. Okay, so looking at um, our methodology, it starts with this, what we call the universe of sustainability disclosure topics. And this is something you're, you know, familiar with. Uh, you know, we're, we bucket these in five categories. We're looking at across environmental capital, social capital, human capital, leadership and govern governance, and business model and innovation. Now, that's not to say that what we do, and you'll see this later on, is that we don't look to go, okay, now we're in airline industry. We need to fill, a we need to fill all those boxes. So we're going to look for all those things, and what you're going to see in the standard is that all of those things are going to be there. In fact, there are cases where, based on our process that I just outlined to you with the evidence of uh, interest in, and um, evidence of financial impact, they don't, they're, they're not seen. So there are actually standards where there is no environmental, and some people are like, what? 
you know, how could there be a sustainability standard without environmental? Well, this comes up in some of the services sectors where there's far bigger issues um, that are material to the organization, and environment isn't one of them. So, so this just shows you kind of the funnel of if you think about like, oh boy, we've got a lot of issues out there. Different companies have decided based on their process that they're measuring, th you know, different things. So, uh, you know, when we comb that for, with a lens of looking at, at an industry, so we tighten the lens down and look at the industry and see what's bubbling up through that evidence of interest and financial impact. And then, and then it's, like I said, vetted through the industry working groups be, before it then becomes a um, standard, proposed standard. So this is what the early outcome will look like. And those of you who have been part of our process have seen this. This is, a, uh, our, um, this is an example. It's disclosure topics for the non-renewable resource sector. We're not going to, I don't want you to, what I don't want this discussion to turn into right now is like, why is there like, gee, you know, why are you doing community relations of indigenous people under coal? Like, I'm not prepared to talk to you about that today. I'm just, I want to show you the, what, what this looks like. A couple things you'll notice right away. There are empty boxes, just like I said. Um, there's also cross-cutting issues that, no surprise, come up for multiple industries. And because we're talking in this case about the non-renewable resource sector, which is very, uh, has a lot of very heavy environmental impacts, it's no surprise that there's a lot under the environmental category. So that should be in leadership and governance as well. It's a heavily regulated industry. Um, this is really what our product looks like. So we've got a, the SASB standards and the technical protocol. So you'll see like for every, um, there'll be the disclosure topic at the top, in this case, access to medicines, the description, and then the actual accounting metric with a set of technical protocols beneath that give you guidance on how to report on that. The industry brief, like I mentioned to you before, is what was used to inform that standard. So you should really look at them hand in hand, both of them. I would also say that it's very important to go through the disclosure guidance in the standard first before you get into the standard part of it. We're discovering more and more that people aren't doing that and they're not calibrating themselves appropriately to go through the standard. So make sure you do that first. Okay, so now we're supposed to have our break. So now you know. Pause, 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 yeah. Okay, we're gonna go through an anatomy of the standards, which I believe is Katie. I believe that's me. Um, so to Deb's point about the disclosure guidance, that's I think where a lot of the confusion comes in. We're like, oh, well, here's my standard and now I need to go and disclose all these things. But the guidance really walks you through, you know, now you need to figure this out for you and your company. Um, if you figure it out, it does constitute material information. Here is the way, here's how you would go about disclosing that. So just reemphasizing that. So um, again, the, the standards are broken out between the list of the disclosure topics and metrics. So that's a disclosure topic there. And then there is detailed disclosure protocol. I think to your question, someone had a question over here, like are the KPIs in there? Do you tell me how to do it? So every standard contains industry-specific topics and metrics. Um, and I'll walk you through our materiality map that helps you navigate that um, in, in a minute. Um, but this is the standard and the brief that, sorry, I feel like I'm blasting you. Um, the brief that shows the evidence that supports that is a separate document. Um, so again, they're evidence-based decision useful, cost effective, supported by stakeholders. And um, some people say, well, we heard that Commissioner Gallagher um, you know, spoke ill of, of SASB. After being briefed, he spoke about SASB before being briefed by us. 
after which he said, you know, I'm all in favor of market-based solutions. Um, we must regain our focus on what is material to the investor. So he's, I don't want to say he's a fan of ours, but he's not as um, sort of opposed to what he thought he was opposed to because he thought we were something very different. Um, so when we are in the process of putting these standards together, as Deb described, our, our um, the vetting process, the research that goes into it, at the end of it all, when it all gets boiled down to the SASB standard, they need to, again, abide by this definition of materiality and all the disclosure topics need to be applicable to investors, relevant across the industry, which is very hard for some people to understand, but um, that's one of the criteria. It needs to have the potential to affect value creation. The benefits need to exceed uh, exceed the perceived cost, so the cost-benefit analysis there, needs to be actionable. It doesn't do us any good to give you something to measure if you can't do anything about it. And then it needs to reflect the views of stakeholders. Additionally, the metrics need to be relevant and useful, cost-effective, comparable, um, auditable, but not the way that you might think of, you know, oh, this is going to be an audited financial, because right now where these things are, des are designed to go is the MD&A section of the 10K. The MD&A is not audited, so there's a little bit of, we're in not, I don't want to say no man's land, but right now um, we talk about assurability. You can audit the veracity of, um, you know, data, um, so that's, that's, that's terminology that sometimes raises the hair on people's necks, but... Um, Katie, one thing to say about that, though, just to understand, is like that's a big frustration with the investment community is that they don't know. Like some people go through a really rigorous assurance process with their reporting, or at least on they've a subset of metrics that they've really gone through the rigor, and you know investors like that. <clears throat> so when we talk about that term, it's because they know in the 10K there's that kind of robustness and that that yeah. data quality issue is there. And so that's why when we talk about this, there's this knowledge that that really is a key differentiator right. with, if you want to talk to investors, it really has to be high data quality, you know, um, not, you know, just... Yeah, and if, if, I'll get to you in just a second, but if you hearken back to the PwC survey that I was sharing with you earlier, one of the things that investors are asking for is more robust, vigorous, auditable data. So um, you had a question there, and then I'll come to you. No, you're not making it up at all. We'll get to a little bit of, of um, where we harvest metrics because we're not we're not interested in inventing a new way of counting things. Um, what we want is to make this easy for companies to do, right? So we want it to be um, cost effective. And if you're already counting or measuring something in a certain way that's relevant to you and your business, we are all for it. If there is a disclosure topic for which we can't find a suitable metric, we will create one, and that's that gets vetted with the working group members to say, all right, how would you go about characterizing this in a way that is useful for you as well as for investors? So we'll, we have a slide on that later that shows where some of these things have come from. Say that again? So, so for third party like, auditing systems or third party, let's just say, for example, um, one that audits your, your air quality or let's say something that verifies that you need a certain standard, you, does SASB go through and say that these companies are um, verified to, to SASB's? Yeah. Not yet, but we anticipate that that will come. Um, so, that's again that landscape that's being built out. 
is, is coming, coming soon. Um, and already we see our big four um, advisory council members already beginning, beginning to brief their clients on SASB. And I don't think anybody's gone through an assurance exercise or verification exercise yet, but the conversations are starting. So I think it's, I think it's a matter of time. And then I think, did you have a question? Yeah, I mean, just in the <clears throat> era of shifting budgets and shifting staff, then it, it seems like a difficult additional lift for companies to then take this assurance step for their data. Um, I mean, I see the benefit of it, and I see that that then adds the credibility, and then that puts it into the lap of the CFOs, et cetera. But I just don't see the budgets expanding to include yeah, and that's actually the same type of chatter that happened when FASB first came out. I mean, it is, it's not to diminish that. That is, it's a significant issue. But at any time, this type of, when, when there's a discussion about this, that comes up, and I think there, that will continue to be one of the, yeah. you know. And one of the things that we see when we do an overview of the landscape of disclosure, when we, when we approach a new industry in a sector for the first time, we do kind of an, our own analysis of what the current state of disclosure looks like. And companies are already disclosing some of this stuff in their 10Ks. And if it's in their 10K, they've got that system in place and they're already spending the money. What we're talking about is making it more comparable, decision useful for investors so that you're not just covering your butt with boilerplate, which is our next topic. Um, in moving away from boilerplate disclosure, which we see a lot of, to more industry-specific and metric-based disclosure, which is what investors want and need. So um, we're, we're looking for an improvement in the quality of disclosure, and it really varies issue by issue in industry to industry, where we'll, we see in the chemicals industry from a, a, an unnamed company in their 10K, potential legislation related to greenhouse gas emissions, blah, 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 could, would, maybe, could, someday, energy, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like... <laughs> Mm, yeah, we're talking about this because we've identified it as a known trend or uncertainty, so it's got to be in there. And then you'll see another company that is getting a little bit more specific in its industry specificity. The EU, EPA, and CARB have certified that our engines meet the current emission requirements, emission standards in international markets, da da da. We believe that our experience in meeting the EU and EPA emission standards leaves us well positioned to take advantage of the opportunities in these markets, so it's industry specific. You can see there are a little, there's a little more teeth here. Then another chemical company is getting very specific with metrics in their disclosure. The company reduced its environmental footprint, achieving 2010 reductions of 25%. You know, we're talking percentages, 1%, billions of dollars. You're getting very, very specific. So these are disclosures that are already happening with or without SASB standards. They're happening. So to your point, it's not like this new added thing. There will be, there will be some things that, wow, we're not measuring that right now. Um, but there are a lot of things that are already going on. Here. I just wonder if the last one, the most specific, you know, the metrics, mm -hmm. uh, even there for greenhouse gas emissions, they'll tell you uh, over what? Scope, yeah. Water, yeah. Scope, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. And just, you get to that, though? We do. We do. So if you look at our standards and you look at the, you know, if there is, if that is a material, likely to be material information, we, um, industry by industry, the disclosure criteria are different. Um, one thing that I think would be interesting as an exercise for you all to just a little homework, go, look, if you work for a company or you're a consultant, you can pick a client, whatever, go and look at their 10K and then go and contrast that with what's being said in the sustainability report. Because That's a good point. Because this here that Katie just, she's, she, she's showing you some examples in the 10K 
I have a great example, I don't know if we have time for this, but um, I have a great example of, we, we like to do that all the time. That's what we do. So, you know, we have this like excerpt from an un, unnamed company, where I'm just gonna read it to you, what's in their 10K, and then I'm gonna contrast that with what's in their sustainability report. So you can get kind of more, more of the sense of what we're talking about. In the 10K, under food, safety, quality, and health concerns, okay, that's a material issue for them as it is in their, in their um, sustainability report. It says, we could be adversely affected if customers lose confidence in the safety and quality of certain food products. Adverse publicity around these types of concerns, whether valid or not, may discourage consumers from buying our products or cause production of delivery disruptions. The real or perceived sale of contaminated food by us could result in product liability claims, a loss of consumer confidence, and product recalls, which could have a material adverse effect on our sales and operations. That's what they're saying to the investor. There you go. Now turn to the to page, you know, 14 of the, <laughs> of the sustainability report. This is what they say about quality and safety of food. Quality assurance is a constant priority for us from the store level up through our national operations, and it matters to our shoppers too. To ensure we maintain a highest standard of quality, we participate in the GFSI, the Global Food Safety Initiative, a collaborative initiative amongst food safety experts and service providers that benchmark existing food standards against food safety criteria, da 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 going on, we're certified, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So this is like, here's the issue, and here's how we're managing it. Like, that would be really helpful, I think, for yeah. an investor to know that. So you see this discrepancy all over the place. You just go and look for yourselves, and, you know, you'll yeah. see what we're talking about. Well, yeah. That's right. No, exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah. Right, and they're trying they, to communicate. So they're, they're, they know that stakeholders are really interested in this information, and so they're giving them a bunch of information. Mm -hmm. but, the, but if you juxtapose them against one another, you'll see that there's specificity in the sustainability report that investors probably want to know. Not only um, that, these are both documents that you're sending out externally to external stakeholders. They're yeah. reading them, and they're, huh, you know, what the yeah. heck? So I think that um, when, if those folks were in the room, the lawyers and the sustainability people and such, they would probably be like jaw-dropping, mortified, right? And that's the thing that's happening. They're not talking together. Yeah. So, so we're, we're trying to create that walkway, you know, between those two disciplines. You've been, you've, you've been so patient. You've had, you have a question. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so this analysis that we're sharing with you right now is only 10Ks in metals and mining, but we do look at the 20Fs as well. Um, so this is an overview when we first approached the uh, metals and mining industry. We see over here um, the red bars are boilerplate, or no, red bars mean no disclosure, sorry. Salmon color boilerplate. is boilerplate. Industry specific is this light gray, and then the dark gray is metrics based. So metals and mining, no surprise, like labor relations, they kind of get that they have to be, you know, managing this pretty well. But corruption and bribery, not so much. Um, local community engagement, mm. Ecological impact, surprisingly, you know, you're seeing some industry specificity here. The, um, the thing that's really fascinating when we get our working group data back, so these are, these are all issues that in our initial research, our analysts said, these are probably disclosure topics that are gonna constitute material information. Let's put it out to the working group members and see what they think. Well, the industry working group members agree. 92% of them agree, yeah, that is material information. But guess what? Half, 
Like there's no disclosure on it whatsoever. There's 92% agreement that this is, and they're yet yeah, great, okay, fantastic. So we're all in alignment there. But you'll see high levels of agreement that yes, this information would likely be material, but we're not doing such a great job on disclosure. You had a question. Well, I would say that, um, <coughs> Well, for metals and mining companies, they're they're in the earth, right? They're so that this is like yeah. they're your supply chain, right? Part of your supply chain. So yes, when you're farther away from it, yeah, you're absolutely right. And when we get to your industry, these issues may be very different. Um, so again, the industry specificity of SASB work, SASB's work is is because you you can't necessarily get at some of those other things about how these mining companies are handling their community relations, right? Yeah. But as you know, one of their biggest clients, right? You you might be able to be your own little um, investor perspective to say, hey, we'd like to be doing business with companies that better manage these things. So it's not only investors who are going to be using SASB standards. We see this as a really important tool as well for supply chain management. So. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we do all kinds of stuff. I think when you'll see the the transportation um, uh, auto supply. Thank you. We we talk about um, end of life. Um, also in marine uh, marine transportation, end of life. What do you do with the, the vessel that's made of the stuff that came out of the ground, right? So it's it's. You'll begin to see when we get to the materiality map, I think you'll begin to see how you might be able to use that information and how others will be able to see how these things cut across other industries. Um, which is, are we getting there? Are we there yet? No, this is one thing I One thing I do want to mention, then we'll take a question here because you've been patient too, um, that if you can imagine like when you do have a big supply chain, and since we're developing industry-specific standards, <coughs> I, I, I really think that this is a great utility to look across your value chain because you can be asking the right questions to those suppliers. I mean, those suppliers are hit with so many surveys that and we know this because when we went into their industry to try to get their involvement, they're like, oh my God, another survey? Like, we can't, that's a dirty word for us. So don't even talk about surveys to us because we can barely get from under this. And, um, but, but my point is they're inundated with so many questions. You can imagine if you're, um, you know, like Steelcase, you could be asking that supplier more appropriate questions Laser of how focused. they're managing that, their risk and opportunity that ultimately impact you. So instead of this sort of, well, let's just throw in everything but the kitchen sink in there. Yeah. So um, I think it really has good utility in that. You know, there's a lot of, um, I guess, unintended consequences, or I don't know if that's the right word, but um, a lot of other utility to Salesby that we're, we're going to just see it unfold in the marketplace now. Yeah. Um, but you had a question, so. Yeah, this is just putting on my sustainable brand's uh, helper hat. There's a bird some feather dinner. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a great point. Yeah, I definitely want to keep talking about this. So there's sign sheets downstairs if you didn't notice, and maybe this could just be a topic if people are wanting to talk about this. That's um, a great suggestion. And unfortunately, yeah. we Thank won't you. be at that dinner, but because um, yeah. we're flying out. But. Like 
Yeah, no, I think. Yeah, I think carry on with, yeah. these are all the right questions. They're all the right, and, and it's exciting to see you guys key in on some of these, these topics. Um, so Deb was talking about this evidence-based approach that we have. Where does it come from? Where do we get the evidence? Well, we are, our analysts are scouring big data. We have algorithms that are um, parsing out hundreds of um, keywords um, and we get data through Bloomberg terminals, we get data from peer-reviewed um, academic um, papers, a, a wide variety of source documents that produces what we call a heat map. So um, over here, you'll see this color coding here. This is the environmental capital, social capital, human capital that we've kind of talked about the buckets. And then there are keywords that you'll see. And then across all of this, you'll see that you know there are different things scored differently that produces this kind of heat map. So we look at um, you know SEC filings, legal and regulatory news, CSR reports, media. You know, go on and on and on about it. And then they get scored. Um, you know, so things that have a high score. Um, and it's interesting because we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this scoring later. Um, but we, we, we begin to see things fall away is what I'm trying to get at, is that you've got this, if you think about you know, the universe, literally, if you think about the billions and billions of stars in the universe, all those things that you could be thinking and worrying about and reporting, and that your, your stakeholders might really want to know, but your investors just want to know, where's the value creation or value erosion capability here? Like, what, where, are the, where are the gears connecting with these things in, related to ESG? How does this connect with your business? Things fall away after this first evidence of interest test. There's a question in the back. It's a really great question because we, we talk about the finalization of the standards, which is hilarious because it will never be final. Um, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, they get to the end and then they go back to the, you know, and they start painting again. And that's really that FASB isn't done. They issue bulletins, they issue updates. SASB will be doing the same thing. The SEC has asked us, can you do a two-year look back? And that's probably what we'll be doing is kind of a two-year update with bulletins being issued if there's some sort of event that makes it such that something that was on a watch list is now you know, woo, off the charts and something that um, are, is really relevant for investors. So, um, so yeah, the reasonable investor has definitely evolved over time because before, um, you know, we weren't really, we have this linear model of industry, right? When you make it, you know, you know you're finished and, and you're done. And, you know, there were no conversations about a circular economy, you know, until quite recently, until we realized, like, whoa, smartest monkeys on the planet. Oops, we've kind of overlooked the fact that we don't have infinite resources. Now what? You know, so that's exactly why SASB is necessary, because the systems that we have in place, you know, to manage and measure all these other things just are not adequate. So the reasonable investor is keying in to say, um, actually, no, I really don't think that you have the capability of producing long-term value because sooner or later, you're gonna run out of water, beverage company. What are you doing to manage that? 
One thing I want to point out too is that in this 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 process also, um, you know, we have the access access to Bloomberg technology, and we run they run different algorithms to do this work. It's it's actually got a lot of detail behind the scenes. But sometimes I think we think that um, the the investor is somehow completely decoupled from society and societal interests, and that's like we act as if they're completely different entities. And really, if you think about it, the investor or that ever-changing reasonable investor reflects what's happening and swirling around in society yeah. and what people are saying. So that's why when you're looking through across all those different types of um, you know, um, areas where our research team is looking at, they're, they're looking at media mentions as well as they're looking at 10Ks, as well as they're looking at regulatory environment and how that's and unfolding. It's your reports and what's, you know, what's I think hopefully this will begin to tie it all together, um, tying together some of the things that you were talking about. Well, you're calling it non-financial, but it really is, and you're right, it is. Um, how do these things bubble up as financial um, impacts? I don't know why I'm creating feedback, but um, I'm going to leave you with this, then Deb is going to um, go into another part of the, of the presentation, but with hopefully this as a backdrop to help you begin to connect the dots that... Um, in evidence of financial impact was another thing that our analysts look for after they do the heat map of evidence of interest. Then they scrub that down for, all right, there's a lot of chatter about topic X. Let's look for evidence of financial impact. Has that issue really affected the financial viability, the cost of capital, the revenues and expenses? Somewhere has it, has it hit where investors would be concerned about it? Is there evidence to support that? And so, as an example, in um, non-renewable resources, so demand for products and services clearly bubbles up to revenue, right? So global market for green construction materials is expected to grow to 11 billion in 2013 over 254 billion in, um, in 2022, over uh, 254 billion in 2020. The current industry revenues are 480 billion, right? So that's, that's big, that there's this expected demand of, you know, um, for these supplies that right now are not everybody is making. That's a huge market opportunity for companies. That's an innovation opportunity, right? So this is, like, if I'm an analyst, I'm going, wow, I see a company that's innovating here. I'm going to put my money on that horse compared to somebody who might not be. Um, intangible assets and long-term growth. Community relations. Well, how do we, like, what's the value of that? Okay, well, community opposition to an expansion plan for a gold mine in Peru led to a project delays worth $1.69 billion. That's large chunk of change, right? So that's how mismanagement or better management of community relations could have changed the, you know, the outcome of that particular project. The costs, um, survey of, you know, water management, survey of two, uh, 24,450 oil and gas wells in the U.S. showed that nearly half already are already located in areas of high and extremely high water stress. So that may lead to regulatory changes which could then lead to increases in costs. So you, you begin to see that these things do begin to connect where the gears connect for business. I think this is where I That's really. So I am going to, um, I'm going to admit to you right now that, I, that th these are research slides that, that I am, that I didn't pr produce, but um, we wanted to give you an example. Like it's, you know, so our research team presented this at the, Research Transformation Delta Series. And this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart, this um, product lifecycle management. I, before we even embarked on resource transformation, 
I'm like, I know this issue is going to be huge because I actually, before coming to SASB, I worked for a biotech company, Genencore, which you may have heard of Denisco. Denisco bought Genencore. We were an industrial enzymes company and a bio products company, bio-based products company, um, that, you know, we oftentimes innovated on products that would take the place of harsh chemicals. And, you know, so our big um, customers were like Procter & Gamble and, you know, um, just that sort of, that world. That's the world I come from. And in fact, prior to launching this sector, um, I was able to go to the Product Stewardship uh, Council for the conference board and have this whole discussion with them and say, get ready, this is coming. And sure enough, you know, no surprise, here it is. So this is an, a strong um, issue of strong evidence uh, with this product lifecycle management and innovation. There's potentially lower demand for products from consumers and regulatory concerns over human health impacts, climate change, and other environmental uh, externalities. Companies innovated to reduce product life cycle can benefit from improved competitive positioning, greater market share, and lower regulatory risk. Green chemistry approach to green, uh, chemical manufacturing includes using renewable feedstocks, waste minimization, reduced product toxicity, and energy efficiency. And there's this, this shift towards green chemistry and, um, that's driven by these trends. And you see this playing out hugely right now in the regulatory world for for one, reach, reach regulations, that's definitely impacting the US. There's TOSCA reform happening. Um, I'm from California, so there's a safer consumer products regulation that just hit the DTSC. It's all about this stuff. I also did a lot of work on life cycle assessment. My colleague, John Dutling, is doing another workshop right now, but we did a lot of work. I did a lot of price, pro, uh, product life cycle work for our company at the time. So we were really positioned to watch this and get ahead of it. And so here it is. So going through all those layers of evidence, first of all, the evidence of interest, you can see it scored high in the Form 10K20F, in the legal news, in CSR reports, in the media. Um, shareholder resolutions, you know, there's some that are kind of medium high to high evidence here. Um, and innovation news. It scored 83% with our industry working group members. It ranked fourth as a priority issue of the issues that we brought forth to this sector. And this is just a couple of our industry working group members' um, comments. So disruptive innovation is required to address the sustainability issues we're facing. Uh, Product-like policies are a key part of any corporate company's business model. The instruction that historically, um, the <coughs> instruction that historical problems offer, CFCs and other ozone-depleting chemicals, well, you know, BPA and so on, have driven home the point that chemical companies must plan for the long-term and potential indirect consequences of product impacts. So many companies are getting these chemicals of concern or out of their products. And I think you, those of you in that space know this well. Examples of evidence now here, what they do is they then are trying to comb for that financial evidence. Here's a couple here. I'm just going to read the first one. You guys can read the others in the interest of time. But a 2012 report by the UN concludes that a number of chemicals, including lead and pesticides, cause an estimate 964,000 deaths worldwide annually, annually and 21 million disability-adjusted life years. Um, that you, you can see others here to support that. Some, um, the one down here, the 2011 report indicates that green chemistry represents a potential market opportunity that will grow from 2.8 billion in 2011 to 98.5 billion by 2020. Also, green chemistry could save the industry's customers a total of 65.5 billion by 2020 through various um, efficiency benefits. And you know, this is so interesting because the world of chemistry, like chemists do not get taught how to think about the life cycle and about the waste streams. They're just like, wow, let's just, oh, we can use, you know, this solvent that's like 
you know, going to be banned in Europe and whatever. Like, they just aren't thinking like that. So this is starting to enter in this, into the space. And you're starting to see a lot more sustainability initiatives in the way chemical products are being developed. This is just also showing that evidence of financial impact, um, where our team goes through this approach. With, they're looking at all these verticals. And in this case, they're scoring either medium or high. Um, I'm not going to go through all of those, but you can see that they have like a, a system how they're um, assessing all of these, high, medium, low, and then really kind of pulling all of this together. So all these factors are pulling together to um, support what goes into the metric, or into the um, standards. And then these are just some suggested metrics that we have. Right now, remember that this standard, the resource transformation or chemical standard, is in development. So these are not finalized yet. So they're just things that they're proposing to the industry working groups. That, of course, is then going to get vetted out more. And then we'll see what those look like when we get to the exposure draft that's, that's coming. OK, county metrics. Yeah, so kind of um, some of what I'm going to just back up here to kind of help frame this for you. So some of what we're talking about here in this example is tying this again back up into, OK, these are topics that might be really familiar to you all. Well, how does that, how do you talk to your CFO about that? Where does it hit your bottom line or where could it hit your bottom line? So that's what we're going to talk about next is, um, again, our, our metric, the criteria for a metric being incorporated in a SASB standard, they have to be relevant and useful, cost-effective, comparable, and auditable. So um, as Deb mentioned, in our working group process, we not only vet the disclosure topics with working group members, but we also ask them, hey, would this be useful information? Um, would it be cost effective? And we ask them to, um, to give us their feedback. So um, in resource transformation, the, um, we had average agreement for all the accounting metrics in all the industries was you know, high, high levels of um, sort of agreement with us that yes, they're auditable, comparable, decision useful, um, cost effective. Um, and this one, there's a footnote here, not all SASB suggested metrics are quantitative. Some require qualitative disclosure, so we're not quite there yet in terms of having everything be something you could download in a spreadsheet. But, you know, for so in resource transformation, we covered chemicals, aerospace, electrical and electronic equipment, um, um, industrial machinery, and um, containers and packaging. So relevant and useful, yeah, everybody's like, yep, yep, we can do that. This would be useful information. Um, investors and corporations alike, as well as the um, public interest groups and intermediaries who are involved, and um, cost effective, yes. So there's, you know, this one maybe not so much, but the reason we have this bar here at 75% is that that's our internal hurdle. It's our self-imposed hurdle that if we don't get 75% consensus, we're not really comfortable because 50% for us is like, mm, yeah, the other half didn't agree. So we really are striving to have as high of uh, this level of agreement as we can get. If we don't get a high level of agreement, it doesn't mean it falls out of the standard. It doesn't mean that it's off the table. It just means we revisit it. We look for more evidence. We look for, um, we may interview people whose um, feedback we didn't really understand to like, get better. Like, what could make this better? You had a question. I'm interested in what percentage of the metrics are in fact qualitative, and then who does the rating? Is it the company itself? Who does the rating? Right. Okay. So that's in the next. Yeah, I think the market. Yeah, the the short answer to that is it's going to be the analysts. Um, you know, when the analysts get this information, they're going to, hmm. You know, I don't, I don't quite uh, think that you gave me a robust enough explanation for that. We are not going to be rating. We are not going to be doing any of that evaluation. Is that the company though that makes the assessment that goes into the SASB 
with the guidance, like the qualitative metric is there, like discuss how you are addressing issue X, you know, and, you know, it, that's a very I broad think, I actually definition. think the next slide addresses that to some degree yeah. because every, every industry is going to be a little bit of a different mix, but we try to really get as many quantitative out there, um, but there, you, there's not always a case for that. So there's always going to be some qualitative. But one thing I want to mention before you go into that, Katie, one thing I want to mention about this previous slide is like in the case of the chemicals, you can see the chemical industry kind of cl cleared. Like they actually yeah. were almost the highest in both cases, not not yeah. quite in the other. But um, you know, this is also an example where we really try to work with what's already established. So the American Chemical Council got involved with us right up front, right within the research process, so that. You know, and, and all of their members, like we had the biggest showing from the chemical industry that we've ever had. Um, you know, they have a lot of really great material and metrics that are already been. They've already been like out there. They're in use. Responsible care. You know, so it's no no surprise to me that they scored high because we really try as hard as we can to align with what's already out there and reported. Um, that's just a point I would want to yeah. make with that one. And then the answer to your first question is here. Um, so there are an average of 17 um, metrics per industry. So again, it's it's not this voluminous, you know, like hundreds. We're not asking for you know a thousand-page report. Um, very um, sort of elegant set of, of metrics. 91% are quantitative. 9% are sort of that qualitative discussion and analysis overview. And that's just for this one. <coughs> Keep yes. in mind that we're giving you an example for um, the resource transformation. So you'd yeah. see a slightly different profile for every yeah. sector. But generally, the point is that we really try to make a majority quantitative when we can. Yeah. And we get this question all the time. Well, for this topic, you have. Um, three things that you're asking for me to report, three metrics. What if I just do one? And the answer to that is we would love to, we want to see all three, but we're not, again, going to be evaluating you on that. We're just standard setters. The reason that we feel that that's incomplete is that if we felt that one of those metrics was adequate, we would have stopped with it. Like that would have been the best way to account for that particular thing. If there's more than one metric, we're saying that the complement of those things together is really what's going to give investors the full picture. So some companies are going to begin with one. They're going to be heel draggers and feet, you know, like people going kicking and scratching the whole way. There are going to be others that go, yep, you're right. My investors would want to know this whole picture, and I'm only going to give, you know, if, if you give them one out of the three or, you know, one out of the two that we're asking for, you're not really completing the picture. But um, so that's that's a question that we often get. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. So um, it, it just helps. You know, we. It's really confusing for people. Like, well, why does this have only one metric and this has three? Well, if we could have found one that gave the information that really tells the whole picture, we would have stopped there because we're not trying to again check boxes or create work um, for people. So someone asked. I think you asked from Steelcase. Where do these things come from? Are you getting? You know, where are you getting your stuff? Um, so, um, sources of the metrics, um, and I don't know which if this is specific to one of the sectors. I think this, this is still feels again, like it's from this NRR. This is again on, on resource transformation, but resource we're just, transformation just trying to show you okay. the buckets of where yeah. the data is coming So, so this is not all of the standards that we've issued. This is for resource transformation. None of them came from required public disclosure. 12% came from voluntary public disclosure. 21% came from required tracking, so things you might be tracking for OSHA, maybe. Um, and 67% we have determined are available internally. You're probably measuring this stuff somewhere, but you might not be reporting it externally. Um, 
So from the required public disclosure, you know, we would say SEC filings, regulatory disclosures, voluntary would be the CSR disclosures. You know, here's an example of what we say, you know, the required tracking here came from OSHA, um, Equal Opportunity Commission, and so on. Um, and then this internally available stuff, yeah, you're tracking your water use, your energy use, you know you've got it, you know, come on. So again, it's not, we're not <laughs> trying to reinvent the wheel here. So we're going to talk about, hey, thanks for coming in. Oh, hi. Good to see you. <laughs> Tom Goslin, DNB. Yay. Big <laughs> hand. Um, so this is an overview of what we're, it's very exciting because we've relaunched our materiality map. And the materiality map is a, is a way of getting the landscape of where different issues live across industries so that if you're a portfolio, um, if you're an asset manager and you're trying to create a portfolio or tilt away from a certain kind of risk or tilt towards having a larger exposure to different kinds of things, opportunities, you'd be able to go into our materiality map and see where these issues live. But when you get to, this is, this is drilling down to the, the, the most refined level of detail that you'll find in the map, and I'll show you when we get there. Um, but you can see things like obviously the industry, what are we calling the generic sustainability issue, What's the industry-specific manifestation of that in our disclosures topic? So customer welfare in um, pharmaceuticals is drug safety and side effects, right? So it's, well, what do we mean? That's a, the meta issue would be customer uh, welfare. But in pharmaceuticals, it means this. So what are the drug safety side effects? Um, what, what, what are the, what's the heat maps, map score, if you remember that heat map I showed you when we were scouring big data? How did it score? Um, then how did the IWG score it? The working group members like, yep, they pretty much agreed that this was a big topic for them. It had high evidence of um, revenues and cost impacts across all of the different ways that you could measure it. <clears throat> we made no forward-looking impact assessment. So from time to time, you'll go in our materiality map and you'll go, wait a minute, this didn't score very high. What's the deal? Every now and then, we will say, based on the probability um, and magnitude of this thing manifesting itself as an issue or information, we're going to call it. We're, we're making the call. There you go. Um, so you can see that. You can get down to that level of detail. Like, did they just make this up, or did, was there a high level of consensus? You won't find much of that. You'll find that every now and then that might tip the scale for something that was medium or maybe not so, so much. And then you'll see what we're saying. Well, what, how would you account for that for customer care and drug safety and side effects? Well, it's HC01, you know, blah, blah, blah. The list of products listed in the FDA's MedWatch safety alerts for human medical products, drugs and therapeutic blah, 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 database, including these products with potential signals of serious risks of having new safety information identified by the FDA adverse event reporting system. So we're, um, we're using something that's already in the industry, it's already in use, and we're giving you very specific information about, okay, we want, what I was saying is if there's more than one metric, that's not the only thing that's going to complete the picture. Investors would also want to know the number of fatalities associated with products as reported in that averse event reporting system, right? So complete the picture for them. Um, well, you just did that, the metrics language. That sounded more like a disclosure language. That's how you would disclose it. That, those are the metrics you would use to disclose. Does yeah, that make there's, sense? there's disclosure topic and then the associated yeah. metrics. So, so they're two. That's the disclosure they go hand topic. in hand. Okay, so you're just yeah. Somewhere in that words is the metric. These are the metrics. The accounting metrics are here, and the disclosure topic is here. And I can't tell because I can't see that one. If that's more of a 
a, a discussion and analysis type yeah. metric, which it might be. It is. So, yeah. And whether there's um, there's others that you can see where that they're very quantit. You know, to to our point, she just happened to pick one of the nine percent or whatever of ones that was more just qualitative in nature. So now we're going to launch the map for you. Um, and this and you, is we on our website. you to go and play with this. Like, yeah. you know, we've got the link for it um, on the sort of toolbox. Okay. Um, so this is live on our website. We haven't added on transportation because we just issued those standards today. So tune back in in a couple of weeks and we'll have added the transportation sector on here. And you'll go, well, wait a minute, you don't issue standards at the sector level. What are you doing? No, we don't. Um, but if you click on the sector, it expands to the industries that are there underneath it. And so just like any good map gives you kind of the lay of the land, if you're at the 30,000 foot level right now, you could see that right now, um, greenhouse gas emissions are not a big, it don't likely constitute a lot of material information for investors as it pertains to industries in healthcare. But not surprisingly, um, other things like, if you think about the built environment, energy management, is hospitals, the lights are on 24-7, the power supply is constantly in use, you're keeping people alive, right? So when you go here on our, um, after I kill myself, you can go on our materiality map and kind of go, okay, great, now I see where these things live. When you click through on the dark, the dark gray cells are where material information likely lives. You then get what I was just showing you, okay? You get, oh, okay, so what you're saying for biotech as it pertains to this broad topic of energy management is a disclosure topic that is called energy, water, and waste efficiency. And it, uh, the level of interest was kind of low in the industry, you know, in the heat maps, it was like, kind of not so much. But the industry working group members were like, you know what, guess what? This is a bubbling issue. This, this, this thing is becoming really important for us. And we did see financial impacts. It wasn't across all of the areas where it could impact um, financials, but revenues and costs is a pretty significant thing. And so we made a forward-looking adjustment. We said, you know, the probability and likelihood that this, the magnitude of this problem um, becoming um, more and more important makes it such that we're going to include it in the standard. But if you're a company in biotech and you're doing your materiality assessment, you're going, you know what, this is not a big issue for us because we just installed our own, um, you know, um, off-grid solar, 100% backup. Like we've got, we got this covered, and we don't have this issue. Um, and we're we're uh, we're recycling all of our water. Like if you have innovated your way around this, or you are in an environment where these issues are well managed, your investors may not care. But if you determine it is material, you would you would disclose the total annual energy consumed in gigajoules, and a percentage of the renewable component of that energy consumption. Um, well, even even more important, imagine communicating to your investors that you don't need to. You don't need to. We're, we've innovated out of this, so, like, yeah, we're not right. From that yeah, yeah, because we got this covered. It it is, mm -hmm. um, and so the, the the map is a great um, you know pe for people in here. And I know somebody in here is um, you know really keying in on human rights and community relations. Well, how does that play out in biotech? What is what the heck is that all about? In biotech, that that manifests itself as the safety of clinical and trial of clinical trial participants. And you can see the thing. So it, yeah, it, it it you know it had a heat map score of 50. The working group members again felt this was pretty significant. Um, we saw high evidence of financial impact. It hit revenues and costs, assets and liabilities, the cost of capital, it was just like everywhere. So no forward-looking adjustment here, no forward impact, no, nothing necessary because the financial impact was so obvious that, all right, so here's the standard. 
um, we're asking for these things to be disclosed. So I would encourage you, I mean, we could play with this all day long. Um, I would encourage you just roam around um, and give us your feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, that we really want to hear from you. Oh, absolutely. Right, because the sustainability agenda out of like your love has been driven to a large extent by shareholder Right. Which has been, you know, slightly at off. Right. And, you know, this gives you. This, it seems like it could you know, certainly narrow it, but it could also have a definite, um, you know, impact on how companies deal with shareholder resolution, right? I mean, proxy advisory firms, SEC often have to decide whether, you know, they're going to side with. Absolutely, and I think you came in after we were talking about our latest briefing with the SEC and them asking, this, you know, could this reduce shareholder resolutions in this space? Could we start to see that these things get addressed you know, through the metrics instead of having this you know, constant kind of adversarial relationship? But instead, no, here's, it's transparent. We're talking about it. It's right here. Do you have any questions? Call me. You, know, you don't have to go and file this resolution. Um, and we'd love to hear your blog about that. Uh, so, yeah, let's, let's have that conversation. Let's really get that out there because it's really what it's about. It's not disclosure for the sake of disclosure. It's disclosure for improved performance so that that gets communicated to your investors so that, oh, guess what? Your employees and everybody are benefiting from this. You know, it's just, it's, you know, what's there not to love? Um, One other thing that uh, we've heard uh, investors say about this is, like, this is a really nice way for them to think about diversifying risk in yeah. a certain area. Like if they are, you know, if you kind of want to look at and, and look at your investments and go, oh gosh, we have a lot of water risk in our portfolio. Like yeah. maybe we need to kind of, you know, spread that out Dial a little bit. So th there's a lot of utility to this that yeah. you can imagine unfolding. Um, yeah. Two great examples right there. And back to your point, I'll get to you in just a second, but back to your point, if you do discover, wow, I have a lot of water risk, I'm going to not necessarily just divest. How do I engage with these companies about, mm -hmm. all right, how about a little uh, watershed management? You know, how about uh, like investing in green infrastructure? Because that's a whole lot cheaper than building a water treatment plant. You know, so you can now have more targeted, focused conversations about these topics that companies couldn't get their heads around before because you're showing them, no, look, it just it goes here, it's hitting your costs here, it's hitting your cost of capital, maybe your, you know, your expenses could be reduced, and it's putting it in a language that they go, oh, if you would have just said that, you know, I, I would have gotten it. But you know, it kind of defangs the conversation to a certain degree. Um, so did you have another question? You, I saw another hand over there. You were, no. She was first, so I'll come back to you. I just had a question about how issues are framed because uh, part of the challenge with sustainability is that there's so much overlap and there's so much interaction with, with the drivers of all these issues. So for example, greenhouse gas emissions is entirely tied to energy management. How do you scope them out mm -hmm. um, so that investors know what they're addressing when they look at a certain metric? Um, it's industri it, industry by industry, it varies. Um, I, I shut down the map. Um, so you can imagine in the, um, 
there, so for example, in some industries that we saw earlier, there's, there's nothing related to greenhouse gas emissions, which doesn't mean that people shouldn't be you know, freaked out that we had the hottest summer ever and it's related to greenhouse gas emissions. But what can a company in industry X do? How, what's their part in that? It, it, um, how can I get there from here? I'll just launch the map again and show how it is articulated differently. Um, industry by industry, and I, I don't know if we'll be able to kind of get through here. So greenhouse gas emissions, you can see, well, I don't have any here in healthcare, but I do have, no surprise, non-renewable resources. So how does that compare? So we're talking about gross global scope one emissions. So we're getting very specific here about, you know, if you're in oil and gas exploration and production, we're talking about global one emissions, the percentage of covered under a regulatory program, percentage of hydrocarbon resource, uh, we're talking about the amount of gross global scope one emissions from combustion, and we get really specific. So mm -hmm. hydrocarbons, um, process emissions, directly vented releases, and fugitive emission leaks. So we're talking about your business, right? When we're talking about, when you see the standards for transportation, you might see, you know, like fleet vehicle emissions as a percentage of this. And I'm just speaking out of school here because I haven't. The, it's, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, it's a big surprise when the standards get released because our research team does not share them with us until they're done. So mm -hmm. I can't tell you what's in there. I know what was in there for the working groups, but, you know, so this is very, very specific. If we look at how that looks in technology and communications, it's going to be probably a little bit different where we see it in semiconductors. Here we're talking about gross global scope one emissions, the amount of total emissions from perofluorocarbons, PFCs, right? So that's what they do, that's their business, right? Um, a description of the long-term and short-term strategy or plan to manage scope one emissions, including emissions reductions and targets. So you'll see that it's the same meta issue with very spe industry-specific um, language around how you would communicate that because mm -hmm. it doesn't do us any good to just talk about, well, I need to read, like, so I, I think we had something earlier today. Oh, well, um, yeah, we saw in the boilerplate, well, a 25% reduction. Well, can, can you give me a little bit more detail? Yeah, that's why I think you're just go, I would advise you to go and play around with that. Yeah, because if we were able to pull up transportation, no surprise, like why are we talking about scope one for transportation? It's all about scope three, you know, so. Right, 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 right. Um, you had a quick question. You kind of answered my question, oh, which was. I think um, he needs the mic. <laughs> when you go from the issue to the metric, um, how, how are you doing yeah, yeah. so play around with it, and you'll see, right, the big topics, to your point, well, how do you get that specificity? Even within the same sector, industries in the sector, you'll see maritime transportation, you know, is going to be really different from automobile rentals, you know? It's going to, they're vastly different, but they're in the same sector. Um, yeah, we're, we're skipping past it because that's not part of our process, but we, every company that files a 10K or a 20F has a materiality assessment that they conduct, and we're going to be helping companies over time with our big four partners, um, helping companies fold these things into that existing process, right? It's like, no, this is not some prickly thing over here that doesn't fit. It's really should just be folded right into that assessment because guess what? The effect here... <laughs> Affect your revenues, your costs, your assets and liabilities, your cost of capital. I want to know, in terms, it would be really cool if you go back one against each of the this one? Um, columns mm -hmm. that are uh, industry specific to see what an industry material 
Right. So the industry materiality map you can That's get to that, from this map. Yeah. So if you click, um, just in the interest of time, I'm not going to launch it again, but this is kind of a screenshot of what it looks like when it's all condensed at the sector level. If you click on that, the industries open up against it, and that's where you see the, you can then follow the trail of saying, comparing biotech with um, managed care and how those issues are similar or dissimilar. Yeah, because so. Katie was showing more cross, some cross-sectional stuff, but if you look down, if you, for instance, pull up automobile and look all the way down that column, all the, the things that are lit up there are the ones that are going to be yeah. in our standards for that particular industry. And it's really like showing you that, if you remember that I chart I showed you earlier, the disclosure, here's a sample disclosures topic table um, from the um, non-renewables. That's like taking, that was like one snapshot for that sector. So every time we do that, we're rolling this up into this, which is, has far better utility than you would have to flip through like 20 or 30 pages of our right. of our charts to, to, and you wouldn't get the full picture in this interactive mode like yeah. you can. One of the tools that we're developing is sort of this on steroids, which is what we're calling our standards navigator tool, which really will, um, I, think, I think you'll enjoy. Um, but that's under development and it hasn't been released yet. But for, for now, if you wanted to see the industry-specific issues, um, you could see those in our disclosure topic tables, which are also on our website. The, the map here gives you that kind of meta view with the, these um, generalized sort of topic areas, and then you get to the industry-specific topic when you get to that level of detail, right? Um, did I see a hand, or are we... Okay. Okay, so again, so now, now beginning to speak the language of finance, um, you can begin to see that, that you, can, you can start to connect these dots where, um, you know, demand for products and services, you know, so, so here's the type of financial impact. You know, the metric type is quantitative over qualitative measures of product features sought by customers are required by law. Okay, well, yeah, obviously that's going to figure into demand, which is going to impact your revenue line. Um, intangible assets and long-term growth, you know, factors of action of, or actions that drive reputation and brand value. A great case um, example of this is, does anybody remember Coke and Kerala in India a while back, right? So there was a huge scandal where Coke was accused of depleting the watershed or the, the aquifer. And they were, you know, they, they were sued, they were run out of town, they almost lost that entire market. And at the end of the day, they proved that it wasn't really them. It was, you know, yeah, they were using water, most definitely, but that it was, you know, all these other factors playing into, um, into that whole equation. But their, so it didn't matter whether they were actually culpable or not, but their brand value, and you know, you all know that, you know, that's a huge chunk, their goodwill, right? That's a huge part of their brand value, was associated with the reputation that that, that the risk that was inherent with just the perception of mismanaging that, that and they, they had a stranded asset in Kerala for quite a while. So this intangible asset, this long-term growth, um, you know, obviously, you know, they've recovered, and that was, you know, sort of the beginning of, of Koch's um, epiphany about, hmm, we've really got to get ahead of this. We can't just manage it. We need to own how to fix it, right? So they are now leaders in that area. They're making huge investments in the developing world as it pertains to water and all of that. They wouldn't have done that otherwise. 
Um, well, I couldn't, I shouldn't speak for them, but. And, and sadly enough, we see this example playing out right now under their kind of more managing risk with GM and their brand. I mean, you know, that product safety is a big issue in the automobile industry and getting that right is just so cr uh, critical yeah. them, to them. And you can see that, that that's an issue where um, there's, you know, lots of brand reputational risk there. And our good friends at GM, we know they do great work. Um, it's just they're so covered in that issue right now yeah. that that's going to take a long time to get out from underneath. So we don't have time to go through each and every one of these things. This one that I really want to emphasize here and the, and the whole um, study that I, that I you know, sort of told you about, the Oxford overview of 190 sources of information, really keys in on, you know, there really is no question about whether or not these things impact the cost of capital. We've got facts, we've got basis points, we've got like it, it matters. Um, it's, it's, it's managing risk. Um, is, is if you were to strip away the language of sustainability and just call this good risk management, um, you'd find a lot more people leaning in and saying, oh, of course, obviously. Um, I think the point of that slide, too, is we want you, we encourage you to kind of take the issues you're managing and see if you can put them in those <coughs> categories. Like, see how you can start to try to have that conversation um, with, you know, it's a language thing like we were talking about before. Like, how can you weave that into more of a financial discussion? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this is kind of a, a map. Some people love it, some people hate it, but it really shows you, you know, discounted cash flow, you know, is where cost of capital is a real player here. You know, anybody, how many people here have an MBA or have been through this hell, right? Mm -hmm. So you know that there are all different like level levers that you can, or knobs that you can adjust when you're doing evaluation. And, you know, so we're talking, you know, return on assets, return on equity, you know, return on invested capital, your blah, you know. Um, your debt equity ratio, all these things. So we're, we're talking, um, these are all color coded. So comparative analysis on profitability ratios, comparative analysis on debt ratios. This is all stuff that sustainability factor, the sustainability fundamentals, right, impact. We just haven't heard it asked this way before. You don't always get the bells and whistles. I'm asking you an ESG question, analyst or, you know, investor. It, but they're inherent in, um, in the way the markets work. So, so what? Here's Deb. It's mine. So we're on the homeward stretch, and I was just checking our timing, and How we're we like doing? quarter two. So I think we've managed to kind of catch up here. Yeah, a little bit. Did somebody have it? a question? Oh, <laughs> okay. So. Um, okay, so I think before getting into this, I'm almost thinking that I want to get into some recommended steps we have, because I would hate to generate a great discussion and then have you walk out of the room with the, so I'm going to propose to flip this and that we can talk about this after I go through a couple of other things. Um, just thought it would be helpful, like, so now what, you've learned a lot today. Where do you even start with all this? And, you know, as I was thinking about if I had to take this internally, like, what would I do? Like, how would I kind of parse this out? And so I think, for one, just understanding the why behind SASB, we've given, you're, you'll have access to this deck. We've given you a lot of reference material. We encourage you to read our conceptual framework. Like, understand what the what the ask is here. Make sure you can clearly deliver that message. And because, like like we said earlier, there's a big landscape out there. It's like why, whenever we hit a new sector, we always get hit with the wall first. Like, oh my God, why do we need this? And then it, it's not until we start to have these briefings and discussions that the light bulb kind of goes off. So you're going to probably need to do the same thing internally or with your clients or you know whatever your your lend your you know, whoever the audience is you're talking to. Then um, really becoming familiar with the standard and its application. So the standard that applies to you, um, make sure that you read that disclosure 
guidance, and that you read the brief. So those are the first two things you should read before you really dive into the standard. But that's what I would do. Go just get your hands on it, start reading it. Um, then the second thing is, get engaged with SASB. Like that's also a really good way to just, you know, we're a great um, resource for you guys. And by getting involved in our industry working group process, um, providing public comments, not just during public comment period, but we're in provisional status. So we'd kind of like to hear from you there too. Um, attend a complimentary Delta series conference. And don't, don't think, oh geez, the one for consumption's coming up and I'm not in that sector, so I don't really need it, that's not applicable to me. I try to make the Delta series, or, or we try to make the Delta series more about just that sector um, by having you know, keynote speakers, here's what's happening in SASB right now, um, we have interesting panels, so it has more utility or applicability to it than just that sector, so I would encourage you to do that. Then, with all that we've given you, you know, with the, the different studies, the presentation material, whip something up, cook up some, a little package that you can then share internally. So you have a presentation with key stakeholders and let them know what you've learned and, and give them this information. And then the next step would be, okay, now everybody's on the same page, they understand what we're talking about, can we form a team and do a gap assessment? This is one thing when people ask us, like, well, how are people using your standards? We know this is happening today. They're starting to look at what we're asking and what they're doing and seeing how far those are you know, off or how aligned those are. So assess your situation for data completeness. Are you already collecting what we're asking for? Like, you might find, like, oh, geez, we've got everything we need, so we're, we're essentially good. Now the, then the question is getting it into the system, and that's where that work, like Katie said, it's not going to be like, oh, next year we're going to put this in our 10K. I mean, it has to integrate into that kind of process, and that's a world that's unraveling. Like, like to your point, we don't have all the infrastructure in place right now. There's not, like, we're building this. It's like build this and, and then they will come kind of thing. So there's still not answers on, clear answers on assurance. There's still not clear answers on how you're doing your materiality assessment through, for this. So, you know, just keep that in mind. You're in a, in a landscape of just, just in time development, if you will. But assess the SASB standards for materiality in your financial reporting. There are some companies that are doing, there are some people who actually are doing, the, the same people that are doing the materiality uh, sorry, the, um, the sustainability reports are those same people that are also overseeing the SEC filings. They're, like, they're, there are advanced companies that are aligned like that. They're not the, the norm, but you know, I think that you need to start having that kind of conversation. Yes? Two related questions. Can you tell us where you are in terms of the process of getting that uh, groups where are you now, what the map is? And also, yeah. second, can you talk about usage? What, co what companies are actually using these standards? How do you know whether they're using yeah, that that's a tough one for us because we are wrestling with that ourselves. We get asked that all the time. You know, we're in the middle of. I showed you that calendar that was like an eyesore, which probably makes it should be painful for you to look at because it's painful for us to manage it. <laughs> so knowing that, you can imagine we're not in the we're not a consulting company. Like we're not out there saying, "Tell us what you're what you're doing." Like there's a fine line a little bit like that we're even wrestling with about how much we can get into that space of asking companies, well, what are you doing with our standards? So we really look to our public interest groups to kind of have, uh, help us with that and leveraging through key partnerships where they're asking their clients and that world is starting to kind of come together. Um, so, so we just hear antidotally you know, what people are doing with them, conversations we're having with their IWG members. Um, so that's, I don't know if you have anything to add to that yeah. one. Um, just so to answer, I think it was your first question. We're halfway through. So mm -hmm. with the issuance of provisional standards for transportation, that's the fifth of 10 sectors that we're covering. So sector-wise, you know, we're halfway there. 
in, in raw numbers, that's 35 out of 80-some standards that we'll be issuing. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're well on the way. And to Deb's point earlier, the other um, standards, so we're, we're on pace to be issuing standards on a quarterly basis. So other, other interest groups or other working groups have convened. The analysis underway is underway of their, uh, their uh, uh, responses. There's mm -hmm. a public comment period currently open, I think, for services? Services, services yeah. Services, it's just dropping so there's, we're at various points along the, the standards development pipeline for different things. We do um, have a, a, a tab on our website that says keys. Uh, dates, dates and, and status, status or something yeah. so you can look yeah. at that and see exactly yeah. where we're at with things and then to your question about how are we going to be figuring out who's doing what um, right now we do kind of a, it's kind of a like a very rudimentary overview so we do that overview of the current state of disclosure when we approach a, a sector and industries in it and we'll be monitoring how disclosure improves or doesn't improve so mm -hmm. even if there isn't a reference to SASB if disclosure becomes, uh, well, first starts, we're, so we're expecting to see things that had no disclosure go to boilerplate, from boilerplate to industry, you know, to sort of ease into a, a place where it's more industry specific and metric based. So are that's... There, are there illustrations on your site or elsewhere of companies that are, have fully adopted these standards? No, no because it's way, it's way too early for that. Yeah. The, the oldest SASB standard is just over a year old and if you think about what needs to happen, if you think of the chart of accounts that is how you go about reporting on your financials. There are, there's a, there's a, a system infrastructure there. There are people, there are you know, lots of people who are responsible for that reporting. A similar parallel or, or something built on top of that needs to happen for things that are gonna go into the 10K. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be, there's probably you know, this data that we were showing, oh, X percent of it came from here, some of it came from there, this stuff is being reported internally, but it might not be in this chart of accounts that you could fold up into a, an SEC filing. So that is the, the infrastructure that we're talking about being necessary to be, those dots need to be connected and those connections need to be made between those sustainability fundamentals and those other things that have the rigor, have the, um, the, the process in place um, to ensure that they've been verified, that they're, you know, um, they are what they say, and so on. So we're thinking that, so the oldest standard is a year old for um, industries in healthcare. The earliest that we're probably gonna see kind of a movement in disclosure, aside from one company that I can think of specifically, um, that's just well prepared for this, it happens to be European, um, it's probably gonna take a couple years at least. So the standards are coming out on a rolling basis. It's gonna be a long while before all 14,000 publicly traded companies in the U.S. are using SASB standards for their disclosure because you also need to go through that materiality assessment. It doesn't, it's not good enough for us to say, yep, these are probably, that probably constitute material information for you because every company needs to do their own assessment. One, oh. I think that you'll find that you've done such a good job that across these uh, industries, the your materiality assessment is going to be 98%, 99% right for every company well, here's what we do know. <clears throat> we do know already, we've seen evidence of this, people are citing SASB in their sustainability reports. They're saying, we use SASB to inform our stakeholder engagement process. So we know that we're going to start to see that. And um, that's kind of the first place you're going to find, like, oh, SASB. Okay, it's not going to show up in the 10K. It's going to be kind of entering in, I think, largely there first. Yeah. But over time, that's, that's the goal, is to have it there for investors, because that's why we exist. Mm -hmm. Yes? 
like we revise its definition rather than the SEC's current one, and how to get there. Because I think one materiality is what we ultimately need, but I'm worried that we'll lose some sustainable issues given the current definition. One thing I want to, I feel pretty, pretty, I was having this conversation with somebody, I think it was you and I were talking about this. So let's remember that companies have personalities, right? They're not, it's kind of like the, the common AMA before, like w wouldn't it be a shame if all you did as a company is just say, well, pff, we're done at, at SASB, like now we don't need to do anything else because this is all that matters. Well, what about your employees? What about your customers? Those are like things that make your company unique. Those are relevant issues that you still need to manage. You don't just kind of shave those off and don't think about them anymore. We're just suggesting that that's not what your investor needs to hear about. So I think you need to be careful, and that's why I like to think about SASB guidance and, and standards as the way to communicate to the investor. It do, you don't want to go like just go 180 you know degrees and like that's all we're concerned about now. Like all that other great stuff we did you know, um, is, is irrelevant. But at some point though, and I know many of you who do sustainability work are frustrated because you're getting, you're just, your life is about filling out surveys and filling out other requests. And it's not really even about anymore engagement with employees or with your key stakeholders. It becomes this exercise that you can't really truly, you know, um, align it across your, you know, talking about aligning sustainability initiatives across your, your organization, embedding it. Like that takes a lot of, that takes a lot of commitment, you know. So when you're thrown in every direction, you can't do that. So I mean, I, I do. I do think that um, there's a great McKinsey study that says we're managing too much. You know, I think companies are going to start to take that narrower look and do fewer things really well. That's just my personal opinion about yeah. it. I, don't know. I think there's a strong desire to have that sort of unified theory of you know <laughs> everything. Um, be, you know, and I think it's human nature for us to want that and want things to just be, just tell me what to do, tell me where to go, and then I'll do it. But it's a complicated, complicated landscape. And so we're working, and you probably have gotten that by now, we're working within the confines of securities law and working within the bounds of the regulatory structure and framework that we have in the United States. And that's why we talk a lot about, well, we're US-based, you know, this is what we're doing, and it's US law, and it's very, like, this is all we can do. Um, because the minute we start even, like, and we get this a lot from securities lawyers, like, you're expanding the definition of materiality. And I was like, no, we're not. We're using your definition of materiality, well, the, the one that you use, and we're putting these sustainability issues through that test, but the minute it looks like we're getting out of bounds, we will be shut down. Mm -hmm. We will, you know, we, and we know it. We've, you know, we, we've, we brief the SEC on a regular basis. We're be briefing PCAOB, and as long as we're, you know, it's sort of like there's this an electric fence, and if you're not touching it, you're fine. But if you're brushing up against that fence and trying to get on the other side, you're, you know, we're going to get zapped. And that, that so. actually is important to, to always think about the lens of, of what SASB's trying to do. An industry standard should be almost like the minimum thing that you would do. Like, the, you know, like to think about going in my role, I was always like, let's go beyond compliance. What about good best business practices? What you know, that makes us a better managed company. If I was to say we just met compliance, so we're good. Like you have to think about um, the fact that at an industry level, the more things you add into it, because you might at a company level be these might things might be really important to you, but then then take a higher vantage point and go, wow, I wonder if this if this issue goes all across, so that every company, small, big, medium, whatever, has to now report on this, like. That's where we end up getting in trouble 
with, you know, like, not trouble, but it's not going to make sense to anybody if you open up a SASB standard and there's more than you, there's just more things in there than can be, it's burdensome, it's overly burdensome at an industry level. So we're not trying to make things overly burdensome, we're trying to make it very concise and then you can go a bit above and beyond that on your own accord, right? So. Yeah, and I think somebody just gets you in just a moment, but somebody brought up the point, well, oh, there's a reason that in the 10K you hear one language and in a sustainability mm -hmm. report you hear a really different language because lawyers write one and communications people write the other one. And that's true. Lawyers will not allow you to stuff your sustainability report in your 10K because, right, it's not, it, there's a whole different criteria of things that go in there. And so we're, we're trying to say, okay, here's the, here's the thing that translates that big universe of things that's something that they can get their heads around. And maybe, you know, you might find that this constitutes material information. So, yeah. when you're having your working group discussions, the context-based uh, scientific measures that are kind of setting up on an economic level, that it's really easy to ignore those while you're kind of in the weeds of industry by industry building up what is risk, what is material. Do you, do you have that discussion as part of your metrics? And, and, there's, uh, yeah, there's a section on our website about context. At least there was when we left the office. We're, we're not sure what happened after the renovation, but it was in there. Um, and the, answer, the short answer to that is that um, you won't find a lot of conversation about context in the SASB standards because that's not our, it's not our dojo. It's not our, it isn't part of the securities law conversation, to be honest. But, but again, uh, it doesn't mean that it won't bubble up sure over time. Talks during this conference about context measures. Yeah, I think but it's. When I hear things like confining our discussion because of securities law, mm -hmm. I just get so angry. Because yeah. the environment and our world's sustainability doesn't care about securities law. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, no, and that's why this. That's why when we take that universe of issues and we say, "All right, is there evidence of interest?" Yes. Tons of people are talking about this. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence of financial impact? Of not so much. Um, and sometimes maybe. And sometimes if we see that that if if we see context as an example as something that might shift regulatory control or might yeah. shift the price of, you know, if we put a price on carbon, if we do, you know, if that, the landscape is always changing, so the standards will evolve. So today, context doesn't factor in 10 years from now, it might be the number one driver, right? Because right now, I think that we could say that because of the constraints within which we've been working, this financial reporting system, we're just plotting down a path and making our quarterly reports. and has been inadequate, right? So we're saying that needs to change. We need to complement that picture with how our fundamental sustainability issues being, um, should they be incorporated in your management, in your reporting. Um, we, I don't think we can get from here to there in one step. Another, another thing that I'll just sort of bring it out because you know, financial accounting is backward-looking metrics. Exactly. Yeah, right. and, I, and you had forward-looking checkboxes there, and so you know, that's one of the reasons why we are where we are. Right. So, so. No, exactly. And so, so we're cognizant of that, but we also know that we can't go from, again, we can't just go from this, this to that um, all at the same time because there needs to be, as there's growing interest, as there's growing evidence that, yeah, there's 
we've hit the bound or we're approaching the bound and that's better understood and better known, then it will become something a reasonable investor would want to know. Yeah, also so. too, we talk a lot about like right now about the MDNA section being a place for forward-looking statements and, and having safe harbor to do that. So, you know, I, it's, it's going to be just interesting to see where the, the, you could argue that maybe there's not the right architecture right now to fit our things in exactly as they need to be. But we're not um, proposing that they go put in, get put in a place where everything's backwards looking and l lagging. And all financial data is essentially lagging it's information. A lagging so um, you know, when you're talking about risk, that's forward looking. So the, the two are like opposites. Like, so you can't think about it. By the time you're qualifying a sustainability issue with finance, financial, you know, you're you're already looking. You're already. This is a lagging thing now, you missed it. You know, it's just like Katie brought up earlier, it's like on an earnings call, if you've just dumped a bunch of toxic waste, then we're gonna have a conversation. Well, that's lagging, so. Um, I think that, were you, oh. We're being just, called on time Are we being well. called on, okay, so I think, then we need to wrap up. Um, I wanted to just, here are a bunch of links that I hope work. Um, they they worked as of before the re-architecture. Um, so I'm gonna go, and make sure, I'm, I'm sure they probably do, but. Before we distribute any decks, we'll be sure that they're live and they get you where you wanna go. Yeah, I guess also to please circulate. Okay, so everybody who's in this room, if you want this information, you need to be on this list. So if you're not on the list, get on, I'm sorry that it's kind of just a torn up piece of paper. It's not very professional looking, but um, I think we're gonna be around for a little bit. We have a flight to catch, so we're gonna be around for a little bit. We can answer questions. <laughs> Um, but I, I want to thank everybody for coming, and I hope this has been useful information for you. Um, and we look forward to just continued engagement with you all.